Oh, there we go. Okay. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. What's that? Crank me up. Hey, they said I need to be turned up a little bit. I don't know. Are you check, Dead zone, is that better? Okay. All right, how's that? That's good. I can talk a little louder, too, if I need to. I don't know if that helps or not. So. Wife always tells me I have a big mouth, so might as well use it. All right. Well, good morning, church. I hope everyone is doing well. I want to welcome everybody to our Bible class this morning. Uh, welcome everybody who's watching online. Uh, we're going to take a little time to uh, have a prayer uh, this morning. Um, before we take prayer requests, does anybody have any praise report into territory? We, what happened? Let's start it over again. Somebody's got jokes. Yes, please. Go ahead. Together, like it's the same event happening at the same time. I wonder if prophecy can work both ways. How so? You can look backwards and see patterns of the same kinds of mountains. It's not the specific details, You're, but you can see that this is, it, it just has happened over and over. Sorry. That not only can you see the, the patterns in the future, but you can apply this to the past and put it in perspective. You're exactly and, and right. You have a framework. You're exactly right. I, I was reading the other day. Uh, did you know that they said that one of the, the one of the highest indicators of a high IQ is the ability to recognize patterns? I'm going to let you run with that how you will. But anyway, no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Um, I, that really was a joke. I told you my jokes aren't that great, though. That was supposed to be really funny, but it, I, that's why my wife says, "Don't do jokes. Don't tell jokes in church." Um, she does. She's like, you're not good at them. Um, give you an example. Give you an example. In the Old Testament, Moses. Moses uh, isn't in the desert very long, and the people just start complaining. Oh, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're hungry, we're thirsty, right? So God tells Moses, I want you to take your staff, and I want you to go to the rock, and I want you to do what? What does he say? Strike it. Bam! Strike the rock. And then what happens? Water comes out, right? Now, that's, a, that's interesting, okay? Now, a few years later, down the road, same thing happens again. This is several years down the road. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, give us this. You know, Lord, you, you don't love us. So God says to Moses, I want you to go to the rock and speak to it. But Moses is mad. Moses is done. He's had it with the people. I'm tired of this church. These people are crazy. I don't like pastoring this church anymore. They don't listen, right? He's, just, he's frustrated at these people. And what does he do instead of speak to the rock? He strikes the rock again. That's not a big deal. I mean, he just spoke, strike. I mean, what's the big deal? Water came out in the end, right? But it was a big deal to God, wasn't it? Why? Yeah. In fact, Moses was barred from being able to go into the promised land because of that mistake right there. Why is that? Well, when you turn to the book of Hebrews, it tells you why in a roundabout sort of way. It says that the rock in the Old Testament was Christ. It says the rock in the Old Testament was Christ. 
And so when they struck the rock, it was a picture of the water that flows. So the first coming of Christ, what did the Jews do? They struck the rock. They struck the rock. And outflowed on the cross, literally what? Blood and water, which was a picture of the nourishment that comes from having a relationship with the Messiah. Well, guess what? He's going to come again. But the second time he comes, he's not going to be struck. He's going to be spoken to. Jesus says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are events that are going to happen on the face of this planet that are designed by God that are going to drive his people, the Jewish nation, up against the wall to where they will have nowhere else to turn but to Messiah. They will not strike him again. They will speak to him again. They will speak to him and he will return. Do you see how the pictures work looking backwards? You can see them a lot more clearer, but Hebrews helps us look backwards. I was especially thinking the, the Israelites, the Jews, have been persecuted so many times. Yes. We can go back to Egypt and uh, through Esther and all that. And every time you can see elements of the prophecies we're looking at, which were specifically about something that's coming up. But when you look, when you turn around and look backwards, you realize we've been here before. That's right. Adolf Hitler, World War II. It was the same kind of picture. Okay. All right, let's keep going, guys. Unless anybody has any other thoughts or questions, I'll take that as a no. We'll go ahead. Look at verse 13 with me. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to him, How long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? He said to me, It'll take 2,300 evening Evening, well, evening mornings is what it literally says in Hebrew. <laughs> Evenings and mornings, but evening mornings is what it says in Hebrew. Then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. All right, let's talk about the 2300 days really quick. It's really interesting. Did you know, I didn't know this, I'm not picking on anybody, but I thought it's interesting because this particular Christian group, nomination if you will, um, grew out of... A, what I believe is a misinterpretation of this verse right here. Anybody ever heard of the Seventh-day Adventist church? Now let me, say, let me tell you something. There are some godly people in that church. Very godly people. One of the people that helped my wife and I when we were in the hospital with Caleb when he had his accident. One of the main nurses that helped us was a Seventh-day Adventist lady. And uh, she helped our marriage. So I'm not knocking nobody here by, by bringing this up. But it was during the time of the Second Great Awakening... And there was, a, there was a, a real fervor that was happening amongst the churches about the second coming. People were thinking that the second coming was going to come pretty quick. And uh, a, a man by the name of William Miller and his followers, they known as Millerites in, in history, um, and a woman by the name of Ellen G. White, they understood this passage right here when it talked about the sanctuary being desecrated. They took that to mean the earth. Okay? They kind of took a spiritualistic kind of a interpretation um, and that the earth was going to be cleansed at his coming. So what they did is they took those 2,300 days where it says evenings and mornings, and they said, you know what? What if we made it years? And so we said, what if 2,300 years, if we start counting from this day and we move forward, well, guess what? They did their math and calculations. And by the way, let me tell you, that is not a good way to do Bible prophecy. If you're, if you're trying to, you know, do some kind of crazy trigonometry through the Bible and you know, 
divided by your, your shirt size or whatever it takes to get to where you need to get for that date. That's not a good biblical way of doing exegesis, okay? But that's what happened here. So they felt like they had this prediction, this prediction that Jesus was going to come in the year 1843. Well, 1843 came and went. And so they moved it to 1844. And then 1844 came and went. And kid you not, they moved it to 1845. There was all of these recalculations, if you will, that happened. So anyway, I don't see this as being take a year for a day kind of idea in 2300 years. But what is it talking about? It's talking about 2300 days. If you look at it either from a 365.25 divided by 365.25 solar years or 360 what we call uh, prophetic years, which is the way the Jews reckon time at this time, either way, you come up at right around six years, six or seven years. Okay? Well, guess what? That's literally the time frame of Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes on the scene in about 170 B.C. He dies at about 164. So there's a period of about six or seven years there. But a lot of people have a hard time with this because it's not exact. It's not exact. There's a, there's a little change at the end. I'll give you a conjecture as to why I think that is. The reason why there's a little change at the end, it's like a, a period of about two months left over with the 2300 days with Antiochus Epiphanes, is because it's not talking about him completely. It's talking about the other one at the very end of the age. You say, Tim, I just don't think that yet. Keep reading with me, because guess what? From this verse forward, it's going to start shifting and bleeding into the next uh, little horn. Yeah. I just I read a, uh, an alternate idea. It's kind of along the same lines. Yeah, though, please. That it specifies evenings and mornings because it's talking about sacrifices. Yes, that's another possibility. So, yeah, yep. and so it, it would actually be half that number, which would line up with the time that Epiphanes put the, the altar in the holy place. That's exactly right. Yeah, and then, uh, well, you explain it. You could probably... No, no, it. please. Oh, you, okay. You've already nailed it. That's it. Okay, so from the time that he did that, the the sacrifices that went on for three point whatever years, yeah. up until the time that Maccabees took back the temple. Yeah, so what he's getting at is is that there is a, a way of talking about the evening and morning sacrifices. And the reason why I said that in Hebrew is because I'm so trained to hear it in the Hebrew, it says the evening mornings. And that phrase, the evening mornings, does sound like the sacrifices, which if that's the case, then we're not talking about 6.5 or 7 years. We're talking about three and a half. Either way, go ahead. Time, 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 time and a half a time, which, by the way, go to the book of Revelation. You're going to find time, times and a half a time three times in the book of Revelation. Again, referring to the second little horn, the, the Antichrist. Okay? All right could be it's both and exactly right all right let's keep moving that's about clear i think hopefully you that's i don't like that laugh that's not a good laugh <laughs> all right yes ma'am somewhere in the bible it says that one day is like a thousand years with the, to the Lord. Yes. So when I read that, that's what I was seeing. Okay. Does so, that have any bearing on, on his coming? Yeah, it's a good question. So let me answer that to specifically do that. That passage in um, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. It comes out of First Peter, right? And in that passage, he's talking about the way we should live our lives in view of the fact that Christ is coming back. And he's, he's like, 
you know, some people are saying, well, he's not coming back. And, and it's kind of like today. You know, it, you can talk about a lot of topics in church, but for a lot of people, when you start talking about the second coming and Bible prophecy, they zone out. They zone out. It's, it's unimportant. I don't get nothing out of it. It's whatever. And it, it's almost like we have this expectation that the way yesterday was is the way tomorrow's going to be. It's always going to be this way, right? This is the way we're going to live our rest of our lives for all eternity. It's not. And the truth is, is that that day is approaching. And it's a day of dread. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of, of punishment for the wicked. Um, you know, everything that has ever been done and said is going to be laid bare before the eyes of the Father. Um, it's an important day. It is called the day of the Lord. It's talked about bigger, more than a lot of subjects in Scripture. But Peter's saying, in view of that, how should you live your life? And there's some people that's like, well, it's, he's, you know, he's not coming back anytime soon. Look how long it's taken. And he says, look, don't you understand that with the Lord, it's not about time. It's not about time. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to him. What matters is repentance. The reason why he's giving so much grace with time is because he's allowing people time to repent. That time's coming to an end at one point, at some point. right? So I don't take that to be a... Um, a, a calculation or a rule that I need to then go back into all the other prophecies and say, now plug a thousand years in there. I don't, I don't see that. I could be wrong, but I don't see that. Okay. All right. Verse 15. So while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Now, this is the first time we've ever met Gabriel, by the way, in the Bible, right here in this verse. Um, what does Gabriel mean? Gaber, Gaber, Gaber means man, El means God. Um, so he's, uh, he's a man of God or a person of God, Gabriel. Um, it's fascinating because Daniel sees Gabriel, but there's this other holy one here. We don't know who the other holy one is. People conjecture all the time, is it Jesus? Could be. It's another angel. We don't know. Um, maybe Michael the archangel. We don't know. But the point is, this other holy one wants Daniel to understand the vision. And here's what's funny. He says, hey, hey, I want you to tell him the vision, explain it to him. So Gabriel does, and Daniel still doesn't get it. And then he tells him again, and he still doesn't get it. And then a few chapters later, toward the end of the book, he's getting another vision, and Daniel gets excited. He's thinking, maybe I'm going to finally understand the other one that he gave me a long time ago. So he explains it a third time. And guess what? He doesn't get it. So guess what? We're probably not either. <laughs> okay? We're not going to fully get it. But the closer we get to the days when these things will be fulfilled, they will begin to unravel before us. And I think, I believe, that a lot of these things are starting to unravel now. And I'll tell you why as we get into it. Let's keep going. So, uh, verse, 12, verse 17. Verse 17. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns what? See? Now we're shifting. Do you see the language? It refers to the time of the end. Now we're shifting. The language is moving a little bit. Okay? So Gabriel says that this vision, even though it's about all that other stuff, even though it does refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, 
in reality, it's all pointing toward the latter days, the last days. Verse 18. While he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and then he touched me and raised me to my feet. And he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of where? The end. See, now we're on the other mountain. Okay, Now we're looking at the fulfillment of the first picture. He said in verse 20, The two-horned ram, pull it up here on the screen, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. We've already discussed all of this, so I'm not going to say anything else about it. Keep going. In the latter part of their reign, that verse is so significant because that's like the ten horns and the ten toes. It's the final extension of these things. The final pictures, fulfillment of these things. Here's what he says. He says, um, In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. Stop right there. Antiochus Epiphanes became strong by his own power. Okay? He was the one that was the military might that took down Antigonus. 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 I can't remember that dude's name now. Huh? There you go. And took him down and rose to power and, and became a, a tyrant to the Jews. But this guy here, he does not receive his power by himself. Why? Because when you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 13, it tells you where the final little horn gets his power. He gets it from Satan. He gets it from the dragon. Look at verse 24 up here again. He will, he will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. That's the great tribulation that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. And that's something that you and I need to understand, especially for the time that you and I are living in, because I think that time is getting here. It's upon us. Turn to Matthew 24 real quick. Matthew 24. Somebody like to volunteer to read, I'll give you the mic. Once I see the hand go up. Thank you. Anybody want to read Matthew 24? Uh, yeah, well, you got it, James? Just read uh, 21 and 22. Twenty-one. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Until those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay. We have to understand what the purpose of the great tribulation is. Turn back to Matthew 23. And I believe it's the last two to three verses of Matthew 23. Will you read that? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and slay those who were sent to you. That one. Right. Verse 37. Thank you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, thank you very much. So he's there on the Mount of Olives. He's looking out at Jerusalem. 
He's, he's realizing he's about to die. And he, he's wailing, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have loved to have gathered you like a, like a chicken gathers her, her chicks under her wings, but you would not. You wouldn't have it. It's almost as if they had an opportunity when the Messiah came the first time to accept him and start right then and there if they had just given their hearts over to the Lord. It's almost, I'm not saying that that's what, but I'm saying it's almost as if he gave them that opportunity. I think maybe he did. But he knew what was going to happen, and he knew that by their rejection, this now I'm in Romans 9, 10, 11, by their rejection, the gospel went to the Gentiles. But that's part of the plan. But, but here he's talking specifically to the Jews, to the Jewish nation. He says, you were not willing to accept me when I came the first time. They struck the rock. But I will come back another time, and they're going to speak to the rock. He says, I will not return until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's prophesied, by the way. Turn to Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. James, since you have it, would you mind reading it again? Reading for us again? Hosea. Yeah, Hosea 5, 15. David, did you have a thought? Okay. Hosea 5, 15. This is a prophecy of Jesus after the, res- after the crucifixion and resurrection. That's okay. We're looking at what is the purpose of the Great Tribulation. What is the purpose of God allowing this final man of sin to be revealed and persecute his people? You got it yet? Uh, Hosea 5.15. Sorry about that, James. Then I, will, then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt and they will seek my face in their, and in their misery they will earnestly seek me. Okay. So in order for God to return, now this is Old Testament, this is Hosea, in order for God to return to his place, he had to first what? He had to first leave it. Right, So he left that place, came here as the Son of God the first time. He says, I will return to my place until what happens? Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, they will search for me. Until when? Until they acknowledge their guilt, seek my face. And in their distress, they will search for me. Now, one more passage. I'll go ahead and read this one. Zechariah 13, verses 8 through 9, indicates what the next Holocaust is going to look like. In Revelation, when it records these very same events, it says that the final little horn, this this final beast, Revelation 13, verse 7 says, it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. I'm going to go back to Matthew 23, 37 through 39, where it talks about just what you said. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Matthew 23. So, what is it that's going to cause them to finally look to Yeshua? See what I'm saying? What is it that's going to cause them to finally call out to Jesus as Messiah? 
Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 tells us that when this man of sin rises to power, when he has defeated God's people, when he looks like he's about to overcome them completely, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look upon me, the one that they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now, you don't have to agree with me. This is what I have come to understand through my own study, but I think what's going to happen is, is that Israel as a nation, when these days come to pass, when after all the wars have happened, that their backs will be up against the wall. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 11, verse 12. He says, now, if their wrongdoing proves to be riches for the world, because, see, they rejected Messiah and the gospel went to the Gentiles, and their failure resulted in riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? That's Romans chapter 11, verse 12. How much more will their fulfillment be? There is a fulfillment that is left for the nation of Israel. God's not done with them yet. Okay, Okay, that's a good place to stop. I'm going to get back into it. We're going to finish out verses 25 to the very end of the, the chapter. There's not much more to get into here. And then we'll get into Daniel chapter 9 next week. Um, before the bell rings again, is, what, are, what are your thoughts on all this? Because I know that this may be some things you've never heard before. May have, may have it, I don't know. Okay, David has a thought here. When we look at this, sometimes we wonder, am I supposed to put aluminum foil on my head? Or what, what do I do with all this? Right. And we're, we're not supposed to be afraid. Mm -mm. We're supposed to join God's forces. And there have been a lot of Christians who have died under persecutions that resemble this, mm -hmm. World War II, for instance. And did not see the ultimate fulfillment of this. There's no guarantee that we will see the ultimate fulfillment right. of this in our lives, but we need to be willing to go to the mat with anybody that rises up against Jesus who is anti-Jesus or anti-Christ, that it, go to the mat with them and say, look, you're not going to win. This is what Scripture has prophesied. I can tell you right now you're wrong. And, and not back down from that. And if it means imprisonment or death, and this is so easy to say in America, but there are people in the world right now who are actually facing this, and, and this prophecy brings them encouragement. Because mm -hmm. they know if I die, at least in the end, it's going to still work out. That's right. Good. Anybody else? If I have to, because uh, I, I say I will not deny Christ, and they want to kill me, I just pray that it's quick. Right. <laughs> and I don't have to suffer too much pain. Well, I tell you, I, I, you know, people, people think I'm crazy, and that's okay. I, 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 you know, being on the crazy train is actually kind of nice. They have good accommodations. Um, good company, too. Some of the best company on the crazy train, really. Um, I, here's why I think we're in the last days. This is one big reason right now. I'll tell you why. Here, here, here's why I think we're going to see a lot. We're going to see these things. I think we're going to see them. Um, 
Jesus uh, gave a lot of signs in Matthew 24. Not all of them are happening. Okay, I don't. I, we're not. We haven't started the the sequencing, if you will, yet. But there's one sign. He gets to the very end of that, and he uses this parable of a fig tree. That's a big one, because a fig tree all throughout the Old Testament is a picture of Israel, and in the ministry of Jesus during the three and a half years, hint hint, that he did his ministry on the earth, three times he went to the fig tree to check it, see if there was any fruit on that tree. And there wasn't. And on the third time, he got frustrated at the tree, and he cursed it. And it was left desolate. And it says in that passage that when you see the fig tree blossoming, blooming, you will know that these things are close. May 14th of 1948, guess what? The fig tree started blossoming and blooming again. The question is, this time, when the man comes to look and see if there's fruit, will there be any fruit? That's why I think we're in the last days. We've been in it since, I think, 1948. That's just my opinion. Yes, ma'am. Like Max, like Max Ann said, um, with me, if somebody came to me and asked me if I would be willing to die for Christ, I would tell them, yeah, I would say, because I like my hair, I'd say, you could chop off my head. If you ask me, if I would die for Christ, I was like, yep, chop off my head. Because I like my hair. I like my head. You want to keep I'd the say, hair on the head. Yep. But I'd just say, get rid of the head. I'd say chop off my head. Okay. I told you the crazy train was fun. I'm kidding. I'm teasing you. All right. We'll stop here, guys. God bless you. Uh, we'll welcome you to worship here in just a moment, okay? Thank you. Mm-hmm. to explain why Daniel